First Peter chapter 2. And while you're finding your way there, let me uh, read you a, a portion of an article I read this week online from a national publication. It goes like this. Britain is experiencing its most profound political crisis since 1945. Brexit and the debate about whether we should leave the EU is one of the most divisive things ever to happen to the United Kingdom. Ever since the 2016 referendum results were announced, it's felt as though the entire country has been at violent loggerheads. Political parties have been split into rival factions of Remainers and Leavers and No Dealers. We lost one Prime Minister in the immediate aftermath, and another was nearly ousted. Parliament has turned into a bitter battleground. And outside of Westminster, the stories and social media feeds are filled with agitators on both sides, stoking the Brexit flames. And the problems just seem to be getting worse. Great Britain is in Brexit limbo, but we keep hanging in there, waiting for any outcome. Put simply, more than two and a half years on, MPs of all stripes still can't agree what to do. And then he finishes with this. No matter what your politics are in 2019, no one feels like a winner. And I read that and I thought, ah, oh, that's interesting. Because we we're in a, as he says, a profound political crisis where nobody seems to know the way forward. And so maybe the question you have and you wondered about is, is God, where's God in the whole Brexit mess? And does God care about Brexit and does God care about politics? Well, this morning from 1 Peter, we just happened to get to a passage which tells us that God does care about your politics and my politics. And we're going to read this morning God's word to us, his very words to us, that it will help us, I hope, think through some of the challenges that we're faced with. Now, as we said uh, a couple of weeks ago, verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2 begin a new section that follows hard on the heels of the good, solid, doctrinally rich section of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 with ethical commands and general principles that uh, help Christians to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't. So we're going to look at um, this passage again. We're going to read 11 and 12 and then on to 13 through to 17. Because what we saw in 11 and 12, if you remember, we said, live like an alien, fight like a soldier, behave like an ambassador. Now, Peter's going to drop down into the details of what that actually looks like in concrete and specific applications in the spheres of government and politics, uh, then into the sphere of the workplace and how to be an employer and an employee, then into the home and family, and then again back to the church. And so today we're going to look at the first application and the first sphere of uh, the, the, how the general principles of living like an alien, fighting like a soldier, behaving like an ambassador are supposed to affect us in the sphere of politics and the government. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask ourselves this question. Since God is our Lord, and since Jesus is our Redeemer, how should we as Christians now relate to human government and to civil authorities and institutions? Okay. 
We're going to read from verse 9 to make sure that we set it in the context, because today's narrow section could easily be cut off and divorced and separated from what's gone before, and it's not right to do that. As the original readers heard it, they would have heard it from start to finish in one go. And what went before would have informed these commands. And so we want to make sure that the truths that we uh, have studied over past weeks inform our ethics. That as, uh, as we've said around here before, that our gospel doctrine uh, undergirds our gospel culture and our living. So, it, And if we track with me from chapter 1, we, we heard Peter say, we're elect exiles, we're born again to a living hope, we're God's people, we've received mercy, he's called us out of darkness to proclaim his excellencies now. How do we do that? That's the, the thrust of where we're going. So let's read from verse 9, uh, right through to the end of verse 17, then we'll pray, then we'll jump in and see if God really does care about our politics. <clears throat> Here we go. God's word to us. But you, plural, speaking of many people, the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now, now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, love that word, dripping with God's affection as he addresses his treasured possessions. And it's a reminder, just even in that one word, of God's love for us and how his commands for us are rooted in that love and how they're good for us. So don't breeze over that word. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Conduct, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let me pray and then we'll dive in. Lord, we pray for help. Politics is such a tricky and difficult and polarizing subject that it would be almost unwise to jump into it. But your word does address it because you care about it and you care about our hearts in it whether we be really engaged or completely apathetic or somewhere in between. You care about politics and you care about how your people position ourselves towards the rulers and authorities and governments in our world that you have established. And so we pray for wisdom this morning to hear your voice speaking to us so that we might rightly position ourselves as your people 
to proclaim your excellencies in every sphere of life. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we've said many, 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 many times before, as we've been through 1 Peter, the original audience are very similar to you and me this morning. They are a tiny minority of Christians living under the shadow of a large pagan empire. All right? So not too dissimilar to us, because we're a tiny minority of Christians living in the shadow of a much larger uh, country and continent and world that is set against Christians, much like they, the, uh, the world was set against the first readers. They were suffering hostility from the culture and increasing persecution from a very suspicious society. And Peter knows that, and so he writes these words to them so that they might know, as subjects of a greater king, how they should live under the authority, sometimes the chafing authority, of non-Christian civil governments? Should they be revolutionaries seeking to overthrow unjust governments and establish some kind of religious theocracy? Should they be patriots with a kind of a nationalistic fervor that goes about promoting government or their political parties in the hope that it will answer all of society's ills and somehow establish heaven on earth? Or should Christians just simply be conscientious objectors that we kind of refuse to get involved in the society and in politics? Or, perhaps more commonly, are we allowed to moan and complain to anybody who will listen about the corruption and the incompetence of the politicians and the political system and the unwise decisions that they keep making and the stupid laws that they keep getting passed? Are we all right to just complain and moan? Well, Peter's going to address that regardless of our political affiliation, regardless of who is in power, regardless of the type of government that rules over us, Christians have a God-given responsibility towards earthly authorities. And God does care about our politics. Though we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we're here on earth in exile And verse 15 tells us that it is God's will, strong language, it is God's will that we submit ourselves to every governing authority that has been placed over us by our loving and sovereign and heavenly Father. It's God's will. Some people are, well, what's God's will for my life? Well, here's the Bible telling us very clearly what part of God's will for us is. And so to traverse this tricky passage, we've got four things that I just want to draw your attention to. Two of them are longer, two of them are shorter, so don't panic because the two longer ones are up front, all right? But here they are, four things. The extent of the submission that we're called to, the manner of the submission that we're called to, the reason for our submission, and then the marks of our submission. So the extent, the manner, the reason, the marks. We'll begin at the beginning with the extent of our submission. If you look with me at verse 13, Peter says, be subject. It's a command in the original and in the English. It is a command to willingly submit ourselves to every and all civil authorities and human institutions in society. 
Peter comes and he says, listen, you may be elect exiles, you may be Christians, and you may be part of a heavenly kingdom and another country, a better country, but right now, while you're on earth, your heavenly king calls you to submit. My heavenly king calls me to submit from, to the, from the highest ruling authorities, the, the emperor at the time as it was, right down to the lowest local official of state, we're called to submit. It's a very comprehensive command. It's, it's a command that goes without exception. Christians, we are to be submissive, to subject ourselves to every human institution from the supreme emperor right down to the governors that are sent by him to undertake his, uh, the governing authority in the land. And this is very similar. This isn't Peter just out on a weird limb. Paul says the very same thing in Romans 13. He talks about how government is really a gift of God's common grace to creation. Through the authorities that God has established, God maintains a general order in his world. He maintains a general uh, level of, he restrains evil, if you like, and does good for mankind. And Peter affirms that in verse 14. He says, you know, the governor is supreme. He appoints governors that are sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. And that's kind of a general outline of what governments and rulers and authorities are for, to restrain evil and punish evil and to uphold and promote good in society as well. And so Peter says, wherever God has established human authorities and governments and civil institutions, God's people are commanded to submit to them willingly, joyfully. Not merely to just doff our caps and show a kind of a deference or a respect. Tied up inherently in that word, be subject, is the implication of obedience and compliance. We're to have a general disposition... Peter says, in, in most situations of life, when we relate to civil authorities and governments, to be positively inclined to obey and to submit to its rules and its laws and its standards and its obligations. Now, the, I was thinking about what examples could I give? Well, we, we, could, we can all talk about, you know, we, we uphold the laws of the land. We don't murder people. We, we you know, we don't steal and rape and pillage. We, you know, we don't do those kind of things. But where, most hit, where the rubber hits the road is stuff like speeding laws and paying your parking fines and making sure your MOT is up to date and don't texting while you're phoning and don't drink drive and don't park on double yellow lines. All of those things are included this morning. Isn't that awful? But God cares about those things. And God has established such patterns and structures of authority for the orderly function of human society. And it pleases him and it honors him when we submit ourselves to them. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, verse 12. How's that? By being subject to human governments and civil authorities. We're to be, in other words, godly, law-abiding citizens. And the temptations to anarchy in our hearts, we've got to deal with them, put them to death. God calls us to be good and godly, law-abiding citizens, no matter whether the government is good or bad, whether it's left or right, whether it, we voted for them or not, whether we agree with their policies and their decisions or not. 
We're to have a, pos- a posture and a disposition to submit to the governing authorities and to those who occupy those offices and operate on their behalf. And it's a comprehensive statement and command, without exception. And then I hear questions rising in my own mind. Well, what about governments that are unjust? What about heavy-handed authorities? How should we think that through? Well, it could be very easy to say, well, sure, of course, when, when people sin and they're unjust and they're heavy-handed, of course then we can rebel. Join the resistance, you know. That's what they did in Star Wars, wasn't it? When the, empire created the, when the emperor created the empire, they, they formed the rebellion. Surely we can form a rebellion then. Well, actually, if you read on into 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter addresses this. Now, he does it in the context of the workplace, but it's no less appropriate for thinking about civil authorities. Just continue reading in verse 18, where he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Also, to the unjust. Peter here doesn't give us an escape clause or a pass to wiggle out from under authority. In fact, Peter here is, is going to tell us, and we'll get into this a little bit more next week when we talk about how this works out in the sphere of the workplace, that God can and does exercise in his sovereign providence uh, his authority even through unjust human authority. And in fact, actually, all human authorities and civil institutions are in some way defective because we live this side of eternity. We're all tainted and stained by sin. Nothing is perfect. Everything is imperfect and flawed and tainted by sin. And Peter here says, even in that context... We can't wiggle out from underneath it. It's not as if we have now as Christians, oh, because it's not perfect, that gives me the right not to obey. No, Peter says no. If you take that approach, the whole house of cards will just come tumbling down. We must still submit ourselves to human authorities, whether they be believers or not, whether they be morally upright or not. Now, think about this. Because Peter is writing into a context where Nero was the Roman emperor of the time. Now, you don't have to know much about history, uh, but you may be familiar with Nero. Okay? But he was a Roman emperor at the time in the, 60, in the uh, first century who was famous, is famous, for the way that he brutally tortured and executed Christians. And he blamed them for all sorts of stuff, the fire of Rome, etc. He was brutal. Fed people to the lions, burned people. He was evil. And yet Peter here says, even under Nero, Christians, we're not to rebel against his authority. We're to submit to him, unjust and immoral as he is. Now, the other question that might come to your mind is, what about when God and God's laws and God's word and civil authorities and governments clash together? What about when they stand in conflict? Well, 
If our inclination, as Peter sets out here, and our disposition as Christians is, is to obey human authorities and to submit to civil institutions, well, there will be times where they will ask of us or require of us to do something that is in contradiction to God's word and God's will. That is in direct opposition to our fundamental beliefs as Christians. And in that moment, we must recognize that human institutions and civil authorities are not the Christian's ultimate authority. That where human institutions try to supersede and infringe upon the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives, when they do that, and those instances are rare, but when they do do that, they must be disobeyed regardless of the consequences we might face. And now there's numerous biblical examples of this that we could draw out. Perhaps the most famous is in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 6, do you remember when Daniel uh, refuses to obey the edict of King Darius? Darius in this, uh, and his advisors, they see that Darius loves Daniel more than the others, and he listens to him more, and so they hatch a plan to get Daniel. And they say, King Darius, oh great King Darius, please you know, pass a law that means nobody in the kingdom should pray to anybody but you. And Darius thinks, well, yeah, it's great. I'm king. I'm cool. Yeah, everybody should pray to me. And so he signs a law into, the, into being where nobody can pray except unto him. And Daniel completely refuses that injunction. And he keeps on praying to God. And as we know the story, he got thrown into the lion's den for his troubles. But God miraculously delivered him. We can go back to Daniel chapter 2 when King Nebuchadnezzar orders Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to commit idolatry by bowing down and worshipping the great golden statue that he sets up. And they refuse. They refuse to commit idolatry. They refuse to bow down and worship because of a greater allegiance to God. They resist Nebuchadnezzar's authority. They reject his commands. They refuse to bow the knee and they get thrown into the superheated fiery furnace for their troubles. And what happens to them? God miraculously delivers them. Now, these instances are rare where the authorities and God cut across one another, but we should be ready for them. We should have a disposition to submit to the state, but it's a submission that is limited due to a greater allegiance to God. Now, hear me, that does not give us the right just to disobey when we don't like it. I don't like 70 on the motorway when my car does 130. What a ridiculous thing. Why would God allow in his sovereignty cars to go 130 miles an hour if he did not intend for us to go 130 miles an hour? I'm going to cut across because that clearly cuts across God's sovereignty. Well, that's ridiculous. The law of the land needs to be submitted to. But if they start forcing us to do things that clearly cut against God's word, then they must be disobeyed. At the point where obedience to the emperor or the empire means disobedience to God, then we as Christians, we must go no further. And Peter himself had first-hand experience of this, didn't he? In Acts chapter 4, if you remember, when he, when he and John had healed uh, the lame man at the temple who went then into the temple praising God, the Jewish religious leaders grabbed hold of them and dragged them before the council and told them, you can't preach about Jesus anymore. It's got to stop. And Peter said, listen, you must judge for yourselves whether we obey you or God, but for us, we're going to obey God. And they kept on preaching. 
Think about other examples of history. Corey Ten Boom, who hid the Jews during the Second World War. Martin Luther King, who wrote from a jail in Alabama about civil rights. There are times where we as Christians have to stand up and we have to speak out about ungodly laws and practices, euthanasia, abortion, those kind of things where, uh, where we must stand up and make our case as Christians and say, this far and no further can we go. Where perhaps we uh, encourage governments to lean on foreign regimes who persecute Christians. There are ways and times where we must make a stand. But our general disposition is to honor the emperor. And that leads us on to the manner of our submission, which is seen in verses 13 and 16. We're to be subject for the Lord's sake. And in verse 16, we live as people who are free, not using that freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That In our submission to human authorities, we are recognizing we're doing it for God. We're doing it for the Lord's sake. Now, submission is a word that has taken a bad rap in our day. Nobody likes submission. It sounds like we're, down, we're, we're calling people to be uh, mats, to be downtrodden on and have their feet wiped upon. Well, that's not what the Bible calls submission. Submission is, is a bad word to modern ears, and sometimes we chafe against it even as Christians, but it's a good thing biblically because, paradoxically, true freedom only comes in entire submission to God. True freedom only comes in entire submission to God and his word. When we say, not my will, O Lord, but yours be done, that submission is good. And it brings freedom to all who say it. Think about it this way. If you buy a boat to go on the river or on the ocean and you take your boat out and you push it out onto the dock and you start that engine and you push the lever forward and the, the, the wind and the salt water rushes through your hair, you know, and you enjoy that. That's wonderful. That's freedom on a boat. But if you take that boat and plant it in the middle of the M4, it ain't free. It's bound and it's trapped and it's tied up with the tarmac. It's in bondage. You need to put your boat on the river or on the water for it to be free. And so, similarly, we can think, ooh, submission is a bad word. No, God calls it it's a good word because in submitting to God and his word and what he calls us to do in every sphere of life, there's freedom to be found. Any other way is like a boat on the M4. Peter tells us we have been ransomed and freed from sin and death and wrath and hell through the mercy of our God, through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And our freedom that we have in Jesus is not a freedom from responsibility or a license to sin. It's a freedom now to serve God as our master. And in fact, he calls us servants of God, but the language actually is slaves of God. We are called to live and obey God as our master, we as his slaves. And when we do that, it is honoring and pleasing to him. And one of the ways that we do that is by submitting ourselves to civil authorities and to governments. And we don't do it begrudgingly. Submission done begrudgingly is not submission. Submission done with joy is what God calls us to. It's an act of our worship. We are doing it for the sake and the glory of the Lord. So let me ask us all a question, beginning with myself. In the places where we live every day, are we glad for authority? 
Do we rejoice at authority? Do we see it as God's common grace to us and to society for our good? And are we willingly, joyfully submitting to God through submission to the human authorities that he has established as is appropriate? Or do we chafe against authority because we want to be sovereign? We want to do what we want to do. We want to write our own rules. We want to live as free as we think we can be. Because submission and following rules is just so archaic, so out of touch with the modern world. It's too restrictive. No, no, no. Trains on tracks are free. Trains that sit in meadows, thinking that they are free from the tracks and the bondage of having to go along the tracks, they're not free, they're useless. We are called to a submission, a manner of submission. That is for the Lord's sake. You know, human autonomy never, ever, ever results in freedom. It's a delusion, okay? Just ask Adam and Eve. All right, go back to the garden of Adam and Eve. Right, when they stepped outside of God's authority, when they, when they rebelled against him, when they thought, nah, I don't like this, what happened? Were they free? No. They didn't achieve freedom. They achieved bondage to sin and death. They were kicked out of the garden. They were thrown into conflict with one another. They were exposed as naked. They ran and they hid from God. They tried to cover up their sin. Their son committed the first act of sibling murder in the whole of history. That wasn't freedom. That was bondage. Because they stepped outside of God's circle of blessing. And here Peter is calling us to live within it. And that only true freedom is found as we abandon the lordship of our own lives and place our lives in God's hands. That's the manner of our submission. Secondly, the, uh, sorry, thirdly, the reason for our submission, and this is just found in verse 15, very quick, and it reiterates what Peter said in verse 12. We're to obey civil authorities in obedience to God's commands as a very real way of displaying God's kingdom to the hostile world. As we submit ourselves to earthly governments with joy and without complaint, we provide a faithful witness to God our King and to his true and better country. And as we live lives as God commands us, Peter tells us that in, doing, in living this way, in being subject for the Lord's sake to human institutions and civil governments, whether we agree with them or not, in doing so, we, we actually silence slanderers and false accusers who would mock and malign our faith and our king. So we live in a world that's hostile to us. But as we pursue obedience to Christ through his command here, our lives testify to something greater and bigger and richer that causes people who are fools, and, and fools biblically are people who say with their lips, there is no God, Psalm 14 verse 1. They say, oh, no, there is a God. And these people are pointing me. Just like we said a few weeks ago, your life could be the Google map that gets people to Jesus. It's not that our behavior in and of itself leads to people being converted. It's not that our behavior replaces our proclamation of the gospel message with words, but nevertheless, God uses the behavior of his people to prepare others for receiving the gospel message. That they look on and they go, I don't understand. What is the reason for the hope that you have? And then boom, we go, Jesus. 
And as the world gets darker and uglier and rougher and tougher and louder and ruder, Christians, we need to shine brighter with the gospel of Jesus Christ by being different. We will not make a difference in the world by showing them how like them we are. We will make a difference in the world by showing them how unlike we are because of Jesus. That's the reason for our submission, verse 15. And then finally and quickly, the marks of our submission. Because we want to get real practical now, don't we? What does this submission look like? Well, Peter gives us four very clear directions and applications that should make a difference to us in real everyday life. You see them right at the end of verse, 14, uh, verse 17. Sorry, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Four things. Boom, 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 boom. There you go. What does submission look like? Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Bam, job done. Right, let's just explain those a little bit. You'll notice he begins with honor everyone and he finishes with honor the emperor. He does that very intentionally because he wants us to see that whoever we are, from the lowest to the highest, everyone to the emperor, is made in the image of God and therefore worthy to be treated with an appropriate dignity and worth and respect as image bearers. Whether we be whether they be friends or sinners, whether they be uh, allies or enemies. Everybody's to be treated the same. We're to honor everyone. The honor, in fact, that you would accord to the emperor is the very same honor that you should accord to the person sitting next to you. The queen walked in here at the end for coffee. The honor that we would accord to her we should accord to Chris, who's serving the coffee, and to Martha on the computer, and to the person sat next to you, and to the person looking after the kids. It's also a little dig at the emperor cult that was going on at the time where Peter just wanted to remind his people, the emperor's not God, he's just a human, just like everybody else. Said. Even, don't worship him, don't worship him, you know. Uh, and, but it's also a call to say, and this is where it applies to us as well, we must honor the office even if we disagree with the policies. Okay? We must honor the office and respect the office even if we disagree with the policies or the morals of those who are in office. So honor everyone. This means no place for preferential treatment of the rich and influential. No place for treading on the downtrodden and the needy. No place for racism. No place for homophobia. Uh, it will change the way that we should relate to the waitress in the, in the restaurant, to the McDonald's drive through person who gets your order wrong, to the checkout assistant who's useless and slow and it seems you just joined the wrong line every time. It's, it should make a difference to the office gossip. It should make a difference to how you treat your horrible boss. It should make a difference to that annoying work colleague that just can't shut up. It should make a difference to your nasty neighbor. It should make a difference to the Sunday driver who, when you leave here, is driving so slowly with his flat cap on. And you think, yeah, sorry, Paul. And you think, oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. What an idiot. It should make a difference. Honor everyone. Secondly, love the brotherhood. Now, Peter's going to get into more about what it is to honor one another and love one another in, in chapter 4. So I don't want to spend much time here, but just to say this. Christians, we have a higher obligation to one another. 
We're to honor everybody, but now we're called to love each other as a brotherhood, as a family. We're brothers and sisters together in Christ, and we have an even higher obligation to those who are of the household of faith. But then we're also, thirdly, to fear God. There's a higher obligation still. We're to honor everyone, including our politicians. We're to love the brotherhood and the church. We're to fear God, honor, fear, love, worship him. Our ultimate loyalty and allegiance is to Jesus. Why? Let me finish with this. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Here's why and how we fear God and the mark of our submission. If we do this, it will make a difference to how we love the brotherhood, honor the emperor and honor everyone else. Isaiah prophesied nearly 3,000 years ago. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will and has done all this. And now as we wait for the heavenly kingdom to come in all of its fullness, as we wait for a better kingdom that is infinitely better than all earthly kingdoms and all earthly governments, we're to live here in submission to our King through our obedience and compliance to the governments and institutions and authorities that he has established because God really does care about our politics. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for reminding us that you are sovereign and good and king over all and that you are establishing your kingdom of righteousness, peace and joy that will last forever and that no kingdoms and no rulers and no... Uh, emperors or kings can ever stand against you, that yours is a better kingdom and a heavenly kingdom and an everlasting kingdom. But while we live as exiles on earth now, we have to follow and obey you joyfully and willingly through our obedience and compliance and submission as appropriate to the governments and authorities and establishments that you have created for our good. So we pray, please help us in the midst of Brexit disorder and in the midst of political parties that fight and wage war against one another, in the midst of uncertainty and in the midst of arguments and factions and trouble, help us to be faithful, to live for you in the ways that you call us to so that people might see our good deeds and come to glorify you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.